Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey, presto, no ads. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. John and I are discussing 1923 because deep in the reservoir of his can and his mind and mine is 1923, a fundamentally important year. I think Einstein might have won the Nobel Prize for Science. Right, that year, yes. I, I think he might have done. It is also the year of the collapse of the German economy. And the reason I want to do that today, John, is that what the Israeli-Palestine conflict has done is it's reignited an interest in, well, lots of things, human rights, the absence of human rights, war crimes, the absence of war crimes, slaughter of innocents, all that sort of stuff. But it's also kind of reinforced, like, where do these things come from? You know, Mm. what are the pivotal moments in economic history that we can go back to to say, okay, that, bizarrely, is related to something 100 years later. Yeah, yeah. And 1923, 100 years ago, but particularly November 1923, so 100 years ago this month, Adolf Hitler rocks up to Munich with his beer keller pooch, which is the first time the world becomes aware of this guy. And that's the story I want to tell this podcast. Was this the first modern fascist? Mussolini was in power. By 1922. Right. So Mussolini's march in Rome was such a great march, he didn't march. Do you know mm. that? Mussolini stayed at home for the march in Rome. Right. Got his mates to do it, right? But he's in power by yeah. 1923. Also by 1923, the Soviet Union set up. So you have, in Italy, you have a first fascist government, yeah. answer your question, which you also have the first communist government in the Soviet Union. So 1923 is when the USSR is actually put together. So between 1917, the revolution, and 1923, you have the civil war. Mm. It's only by 1923 the communists, the Bolsheviks, get into power properly and basically have laid waste their enemies and the country. So it's a crucial year from that perspective. So you've got liberal democracy, Britain and the United States and France, traumatised after the First World War. 
You have, on the eastern side of Germany, you have Soviet communism, Bolshevism. In the south, you have fascism. Yeah. And Germany is almost like this cauldron that's boiling up. Yeah. And all the flames are coming from everywhere. But it's and also then it the, all spills over yeah. in 23. And it was also the end of the First World War, the collapse and disappearance of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, and, and all that stuff. And the Austrian Empire's gone and all these things are gone, right? Yeah. So it's a, it's a massive change. Huge change. And in Munich, you have a disgruntled little man with a moustache yeah. who was railing against Jews, outsiders, capitalists and socialists. He's railing against everybody. And at that stage, in 1922, he is dismissed as a bit of a weirdo. 1923, still a bit of a weirdo. By the end of 1923, he's in prison. Mm. He is absolutely humiliated. And yet by 1933, he is the Fuhrer of Deutschland. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But it's all driven by economics. The whole thing is economics. The whole thing, the whole story of the Nazis is a story of economics. So let's go to Professor Mark Jones of UCD, an amazing book he's written. And let's talk economics, Nazism, Weimar Republic, liberalism, and the rise of Adolf Hitler. I was actually last night reading furiously an amazing book called 1923, the Forgotten Crisis in the Year of Hitler's Coup by Mark Jones, Assistant Professor of History at UCD up the road. The book is phenomenal. What makes it even more interesting, more opposite right now, is we're talking about an episode which happened in November 1923. So 100 years ago, this month is what we're talking about. We're talking about the putsch, Hitler's putsch in Munich, we're also talking about the peak of the hyperinflation in Germany and that interaction where hyperinflation and the disappearance of money undermines the society, allowing all sorts of strange creatures to emerge, one of whom was, of course, Adolf Hitler. We're also looking at this through the lens of the present crisis in Israel-Palestine because, of course, if there's no Hitler, there's probably no Israel, if you want to think about that. But also, and what is fascinating, is the fact that Although most people look at 1923 as the year Hitler emerges as a character with his pooch, what this book argues, and this is what I find interesting given the amount of populist individuals, fascist individuals, anti-democratic forces, anti-liberal forces emerging all over the world, what this book argues, and it's, it's, it's a testament to Mark who's on the line, is that, hold on a second, what is interesting is also the fact the Weimar Republic a liberal democracy under threat internally and externally, not only survived, but managed to crush this movement for a decade because Hitler didn't get into power for a decade later. And again, one of the theses of the book is it is important and crucial what people do in the face of these threats, how politicians react in the face of these threats, how institutions stand up to anti-democratic forces. So fascinating stuff. Mark Jones is here with us. Mark, how are you? First of all, congratulations. A wonderful Amazing read. Thanks, David. Really appreciate that. You've got the, the message and purpose of the book on the head. I suppose the one thing I would maybe say is when I started researching and writing this book, I didn't hope that its political message would be as, as relevant. You know, that, that's the nature of historical research. I suppose it takes years to, to put together these stories. And unfortunately, the message of the book, I think, has become more relevant than ever. Oh, it's, it's incredibly relevant. But I want to bring the listener back to this year, 1923. So it's 100 years ago this year. It's phenomenally important and 
opposite for our times. Tell me what is going on in Germany, the big, big issues. What explains the hyperinflation, how the hyperinflation impacts on society, where the anti-Semitism comes from, all that stuff. What does Germany look and feel like on the 1st of January 1923? So on the 1st of January 1923, Germany is already in a situation where the currency is facing a crisis. So it's best to think, you know, there's a period of galloping inflation at the end of 1922. The value of the German mark versus the dollar is already rapidly declining. There is a crisis And politicians and the German Central Bank can't solve that crisis because the economic crisis in Germany is tied to the international crisis of what are Germany's relations going to be with France and Britain and the issue of reparations. France, over the course of 1922, led by Raymond Poincaré, has come to the the view that Germany is not willing to pay reparations to France, which France needs to help pay for the reconstruction of the area of France that was destroyed in the First World War. That's an area of territory that's the size of the contemporary Netherlands. It has to be rebuilt from scratch. And although many German, particularly German liberals, are willing to pay reparations, pay towards the cost of rebuilding France, uh, France feels that they're not paying them, them at a rate commensurate to what Germany can pay. And they're even arguing that Germany is deliberately worsening its economy to avoid paying reparations to France. Christmas 1922, the United States, which is the becoming power in the world for what we will all call the American century, is looking at this situation and it's saying, uh, the State Department is saying, the Europeans are too much at loggerheads for us to bother to get involved in this situation. We've got to let them burn out their disputes before we get involved. And so at this point in time, French Prime Minister Raymond Poincaré has given the green light to his army. He's requested to plan it since earlier in the year, but he's given them the green light to invade the Ruhr district. And the Ruhr district is the coal-producing region, the heart of the German economy. Remember, at this point in time, coal is the most important source of energy. It's the, the engine of the German industrial economy. France and Britain, Belgium and the United States already occupy the Rhineland, which is the western border of, uh, between France and Germany. That's part of the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, that occupation takes place as a security issue because France doesn't want Germany to reinvade. And so this, this extension of occupation into the industrial heartland of Germany, the first reason why France says we're doing this is because they want to secure reparations in kind. They want to take the coal and coke from the German mines and deliver them to France and, and Belgium. Britain stays out of the occupation. It doesn't join in the occupation of the Ruhr. And this sets up a, a, a crisis within the international system. Yeah. What, what is the future of the Ruhr occupation going to be? And as I kind of show in the, in the book, that quickly radicalizes due to violence, due to nationalism, and due to a German response to the occupation, which is something called passive resistance. Because Germany doesn't have an army that it can fight the invasion with. Instead, it tells the workers of the Ruhr not to comply, the workers effectively on strike. And then the German Central Bank and Finance Ministry, they begin to fund the strike by printing money. And I think this is something to think about more generally, is that Germany, in the era of the First World War, from 1914 to 1924, has a decade of inflation. And the hyperinflation that peaks in November 1923 is the end point of that decade of hyperinflation. So, so that's, that's fascinating because we, do, we, we don't have to look at it. So the Germans start the First World War and they think they're going to win. We've got the Prussian army. We knocked the socks off the French before. We're the tough guys in the area. You know, the Brits are only a maritime power. Ultimately, they'll get sick of the French and, and we'll smash them all. And we'll smash these Russians. And when we do so, we'll rob all their goodies. And that's how we'll pay for everything. So this is the, this is the, yeah. the, sort of the classic 
bully plunder approach. So, so the Germans say, okay, well, if we're going to win the war, it makes complete sense for us to go to our punters, our middle classes, and borrow from them and issue them IOUs. And those IOUs will be redeemed by French property and French this, that, and the other. And we also forget that France was actually much richer than Germany as a consumer market before the First World War. So it was all playing out nicely. And then they lose the thing, right? And then, of course, they've no money to pay. And not only have they no plunder, they're paying reparations. So they've gone from an economic forecast that was, don't worry, we'll rob everybody else's stuff, to pay back our punters to, oh, we've got to pay back reparations and try and pay our punters. We can't do this. So we're just going to inflate the whole thing away. That's really and what's you, going on. You, you have to add in one more thing. The Weimar Republic is a social democratic-led political project which says we're going to end fights and rows between workers and owners of capital by expanding the welfare state. So in addition to what you've just said, they're going to expand their welfare state at the same time to create social cohesion. So you're facing the situation where a country which has a massive bill from a lost war, reparations to pay, and an expanding state. And in that circumstances, inflation, printing extra money, makes sense to a degree, and it becomes kind of like a drug to policymakers. Okay, so that's why that's why it all happens. That's why, because people ask me, why did the Germans print so much money? What you're saying, Mm -hmm. it was almost like a... Hublings first between the French occupying the Ruhr and the Germans. As long as the Germans could print, they could keep at least a part of the German economy going. And as long as they can keep a part of the German economy going, the French might get fed up and leave. Is that was their that was their strategy? Yeah. Well, their initial strategy is they're going to print money, and the occupation crisis will pass before they run out of reserves. Because on the one hand, they're printing money to keep their domestic economy going, but they need foreign exchange. So they need the value of the German mark to stay at something manageable, at some kind of manageable level in international exchange markets. And initially they're thinking we can prop up the value of the mark on exchange markets through spending our uh, precious metals and savings. Because what, what you've said about the war is, is really, really a, a you know, brilliant summary of it. But they've also, from 1914, they've hoarded precious metals. So they've asked you know, your middle class German to say, you've got to buy an IOU from us and you'll be repaid with French goods when we win the war. But could you also give us your gold and silver in the interest of the nation because we need to save up on gold and silver? So, the, so, so they're, the they're almost of, like melting down necklaces and all. So, I mean, it sounds weird, but that's what they're doing. Yeah, they're collecting. They've got a... They, so, so, so the German central bank, so, so Keynes says this on the eve of, of December 22. He said, you know, it's like never before in the history of the world as economies has a major uh, currency collapsed at the value that the German mark has versus the dollar. This is the end of 22, with the central bank having so much reserves of precious metals without spending it. And so the question is, what's this German central banker, Rudolf von Haverstein, going to do with Germany's gold and silver hoardings? And, and what did he do? Over what did he do with it? Well, he doesn't want to spend them because he fears, once I spend my bazooka, it's gone. So I don't want to spend it until I'm certain that I can use it effectively. And his fear is in 22, his fear is he will spend it and then the French will march in and take the profit from his intervention anyway. So they'll have no so gold being... and no coal and no roar. Okay. Exactly. That's, so it's, it's, it's like a poker game between them. Exactly. So he's holding back on that scenario. But after the, the occupation of the Ruhr on the 11th of January, when from the German side, the fear is exactly as you say, not just that they'll have no coal and coke from the Ruhr, but the fear is that the French will annex the Ruhr permanently and take it from them forever, which 
would be a massive boost to the French economy and a massive weakening of the German economy and really threaten sure. the survival of the ger- German state. So in this point in time, he's the poker player who suddenly becomes radicalized. I've got to throw everything in now because this is my, my now or never moment. And he believes that he can hold on for long enough. But by April, he realizes that he can't because while he's doing this in the national interest, lots of other operators in Germany who also have access to foreign currency are profiting from the crisis. Okay, uh, because if, okay. you, if you're selling internationally in Germany and you're a company like Siemens, you've got lots of dollars in your dollar accounts. So you're looking at the crisis and you're thinking, this is an opportunity for us to buy up struggling rivals, to buy up assets. And so someone like Germany's richest man, Hugo Stinnes, he's looking at this crisis and he's saying, I might be able to get the German railways into my private possession. So they're uh, looking. So, so these guys are looking. So there's a part of the German population is looking at this as almost a fire sale. We're like, wow. Okay, yes. these are the really yes. rich Germans, right? So you've got a small proportion of Germans saying hyperinflation. Great, this is we can buy things at a fire sale. You have the French occupying the Ruhr. You have therefore the middle class of Germany who lent all this money to the war effort, realizing. Not only are we not going to get anything back, but our entire savings are gone. They are getting extremely angry. I want to, I want to introduce our, fr- our friend, Mr. Hitler, in a second, right? But this is the background noise. Just to add in one thing, the middle class feels that it's losing massively. And it's really, really annoyed because it looks at the working class. And the working class still has the unions and the lobbies. And the working class is getting higher wages in, in relation to the inflation because its wages are indexed to the rate okay. at which the currency is increasing. So they feel like the social order of the world is being turned upside down. We're losing. And those people who are, you know, in a class-based society- Who are inferiors, our inferiors are gaining. Our inferiors are gaining, are winning, and they're accumulating, you know, they're using this opportunity to buy luxury goods. They're, dis- you know, they're displaying those luxury goods. And so there's this feeling that everybody who's in their place is suddenly not in their place anymore. And that's making everybody angry. And right at the very, very top, you have the very, very rich with the middle class are looking at and saying, and these guys are also profiting. Yes. So you have the fear of the working class. And of course, the the working class are getting paid because of a fear of communism. Because don't forget, we're talking about a time when the Soviet Union is the biggest threat intellectually and socially to the German order. Isn't that maybe the case as well? That is the case, but it's touching dangerous ground there. Because if I say the Soviet Union is the biggest threat, to the political order in Germany, people say, well, fascism. No, but uh, I'm, I'm talking about the Mussolini. communists. The, the communists yeah. are on the street and they're being informed by Moscow and they're yes. being emboldened yes. by Moscow. Uh, and yeah. that's part of the mix as well. I mean, we're that's talking about a total the, chaos here. The fear is that that this, the working class will uh, state, I mean, th- there's been several working class uprisings that are trying to follow the script offered by Lenin and the Bolsheviks in Germany. They've all been defeated between January 1919 and the start of 1923. But for every middle class person predicting what will happen next, who's fear, uh, you know, the prediction that a Bolshevik style uprising will happen is one that they all believe in. And it does happen too. You know, it, it's, it doesn't occur on the scale in October, but in October 1923, inspired by their intellectual leadership in Moscow, their political leadership in Moscow, there is a moment when the, the, the far left, the Soviet Union admirers in Germany call out the workers to overthrow the state. And so you've got certain regions in Germany where there's particularly strong support for those ideas, like in Saxony and Thuringen and in Hamburg as well. But what happens in October during the crisis point is that the working class in even its strongholds rejects the idea of revolution because it feels that it will lose. And so when the uprisings come, they're limited geographically. So Hamburg, there's an uprising in Hamburg, but it's on its own, really. 
and that means that it's, it's easily defeated within its own context. So yeah, so that's the outcome basically of this worsening economic situation is that middle class fears are confirmed by what happens in October and they're confirmed by the months before that in the summer. There's a strike wave in the summer in the parts of Germany where they're not passively resisting. Workers are angry. One of the things that's annoying them by the summer is they're getting higher wages because of the indexing of wages. But riots are happening on payday. And so what you see when you lower the microscope is they get paid they go to the shops, but there's nothing in the shops to buy. And that's when they and riot. And then they riot. And okay, so that's the thing. So, okay, so let me talk now about anti-Semitism, Hitlerism, the putsch that happens this month, 100 years ago. And it's the first time the world sees Hitler, although the Bavarians were seeing him before that. Explain to me the anti-Semitism. Where is it coming from? Why is it so explosive in these couple of years? And what does it tell us about Hitler's intentions that become the appalling reality later on? So anti-Semitism has always been a part of European history and culture. But in Germany, what I always say is in the decade before 1914, it's a force that's in decline. It's declining. People are becoming more educated. They're seeing as to be an anti-Semite for a middle class person, an educated person, is, is a sort of statement that you're backward. So there's a lot of criticism that if you still believe in that, you're a bit backward. After 1914, that changes because the war radicalizes everything and it radicalizes German anti-Semitism too. And there's a feeling that German Jews aren't, you know, Jews are 1% of the population of Germany at this time. There's a feeling that Jews are avoiding paying the blood sacrifice at the front. That's not true. German Jews are fighting in in the German armies as a higher percentage than they are than than, than the the non-Jewish population. After 1918, the German right including Hitler, who's a, who's a nobody at this stage, are all radicalized by the idea that the Jews are responsible for our defeat. Because, you know, you mentioned before, you know, this belief in victory was very much part of the German military culture. We've got the best, we're, we're the best soldiers, we're the best military power, we've beaten the French. We can't lose a war. You know, we, we don't lose wars. We that's can only our, be stabbed in the our, back. That's our DNA. So we've been stabbed in the back and the Jews are to blame. And Hitler profits from that. And that's part of his political identity, part of his writing, is part of the way way he speaks from the very start. By the second half of 1922, it's getting more traction. And in 1923, it's getting more and more traction because as the economy worsens, scapegoats are, you know, they're a powerful idea. Blame blame somebody for something that's going wrong. And you get this in the agricultural producing regions. There's a woman called Andrea Ellent, who's like, who's a very early Nazi. Her husband is killed in the First World War. She has her own Sturmabteilung, which is own unit of SA men who follow her around. She goes into r- rural villages and she says, you know, the Jews are to blame for everything. And you can blame everything what's going wrong in your life on the Jews. She has meetings only for women where she says, you know, if you've had a miscarriage, it's your Jewish doctor's fault. You know, this is the kind of moment, it's, it's an irrational pulling together of fears that touches and links and connects both national issues local issues and body personal issues. You know, the Jewish migrant is coming and they're going to be, uh, they're going to abuse your children or rape you. You know, this is the kind of anti-Semitism that's and present. At this stage, there are Jewish migrants coming from the former Soviet Union, coming from the chaos in the East to Germany. Exactly. They're coming in, exactly. not in huge numbers, but in sufficiently large numbers to actually make this a thing. And, and Exactly. So right. there's, there's a symbolism of the Jewish migrant and then they tend to congregate. So what the category that people used to describe is called the Eastern Jew. Yeah. And so the German Jews, so someone like Walter Rathenau, who's a German foreign minister who's m- murdered in 1922, who, who helped set up AEG, his father sets up AEG, uh, you know, they see themselves as being German bourgeois Jews and they disassociate themselves from these, from what they call the Eastern Jews because they have physically different appearances. 
and they tend to you know congregate in certain streets in certain areas of the, of the large cities which then give those areas a kind of feeling as no longer belonging to germany because of the presence of the, those uh, people who look different speak differently and they trade and of course because they trade and they're selling small goods the time when the economy is tanking then people start saying why do they have money why are they able to sell stuff how are they getting how's their trade working there must be some kind of bigger explanation. And in that moment of explanation, they turn to conspiracy. And while all of this is going on... I mean, this is all so, it's all so germane to now when we're talking about Europe and migrants and people. You know, it, it's extraordinary. You know, the, the echoes are uncanny. The echoes are, are frightening. The processes by which we define who we are by excluding other people uh, is something that seems to be part of our cultures. And it seems to become more important in times of crisis, in times of instability, in times when we're not certain what's coming next in the future. But I want to come back because we, we didn't say enough about what Hitler's doing at this time. Yeah, so let's come back to Hitler. He's turning on an, a national rhetoric from the very start of the, the occupation of the Ruhr, where everybody else is saying France is to blame. The French aren't treating us like we're great power. We're being treated like a colony. We're not getting treated the way we deserve. And Hitler is saying, no, France... They're just being an empire. They're, they're just, just being doing French. what they do. They're doing what they're doing, yeah. Our problem is we're weak and we can't defend ourselves. And our leadership in Social Democrats and Jews in Berlin are the people to blame. And so he starts speaking more and more radically against the, the Jews and Social Democrats across during his public performances in the year. And that brings him more crowds. And he's learning from the reaction to his speeches. He's learning from the reaction to how people respond to what I call kind of the gallows moments in his speeches. So a gallows moment is when he says, we've got to hang them. You know, the solution to this is going to be to hang them. And he says, you know, he says, you know, I know we're on extreme ground, but it's either us or them. And if he gets a roar at the gallows moment, he says, okay, I'm going to repeat that again and again. This is the old, it's almost the Greek, this is the Greek theatre, like, you know, bring them back, bring them back, bring them back. Exactly, exactly. So it's that same kind of thing, you know, he's learned already that, you know, Throw an idea into the assembly where I'm speaking. If you get a large cheer, repeat that idea. And that's how he's learning. So his speeches are quite dynamic. If you've seen the film Downfall, everyone knows the end of Downfall, the meme where Hitler's screaming and shouting. That's not really the way Hitler speaks in 1923. His speeches are a mixture of comedy, mundane, boring, long periods where he doesn't scream. He throws out a joke. People laugh. And then over time, he comes to kind of crescendo where he gets really round and, st- and starts shouting that, you know, it's the Jews' fault. The best observers we have for this are German Jews and Social Democrats who are going into the Nazis' meetings to watch and listen to what they say and to offer a warning about what Hitler is. One Social Democrat calls him, he writes in, you know, the spring of 1923, Hitler's a psychopath. This country has never turned to a psychopath in a time of national crisis. But people aren't listening because too many other people are being mobilized and gripped by this message that there is an enemy that we can blame for all of our ills, a simple explanation. And that brings people into Hitler. And it's important to stress that those gallows moments extend to one of the editors of the Volkischer Beobachter, the Nazi's newspaper, a man who, who said in 1922, when Mussolini becomes um, the leader of Italy, he says, you know, Germany has a Mussolini too, his name is Adolf Hitler. He even says to a Nazi meeting, we can solve the occupation of the Ruhr if we order 50,000 Jews to bring their belongings to one place in Germany within three days, you know, bring enough belongings for a few to stay there for a few days, we'll take them hostage and then we'll tell the French, if you don't get out of the Ruhr, we'll offer 50,000 souls to a higher power. It's a threat to murder 50,000 people to solve so this the is, Ruhr crisis. This is the beginning. They all cheer for that. It's the beginning of 
a way of speaking about mass murder and mass killing of Jews that is very present in the Nazis' rhetoric publicly in the year 1923. So this is a crucial, pivotal moment where what has been spoken about is beginning to form what becomes the Holocaust. That's what we're talking about. And that is that is 20 years right. hence, that is tw- 19 years hence, but it's it's beginning to be spoken about, accepted, and as you say, applauded in parts of Germany. Can we just go now, I know it's it, it, it should be the centrepiece, but to the actual putsch itself, the actual moment in early November, 100 years ago, this week or last week, where Hitler leads his fledgling Nazi party and, and tries to overtake the, the government in Bavaria, in Munich. Yeah, so the November putsch, I call it the now or never moment. Any extremist group by October, November knows this is the moment in time when we have to try and overthrow the state. And the reason they know that is in August, Gustav Stresemann has become chancellor. At the end of September, he's abandoned passive resistance. Plans are afoot to restabilize the, the, the currency. Thinking people looking forward know stabilization is coming. And so if we don't move now and use all the grievances okay. that are yeah, present yeah. This is, this now, is our chance. we can't we re- regret this forever. And so... Peak chaos, this is our moment, right. Exactly. This is the, And so Hitler is one of many conspiratorialists thinking, what are we going to do? How are we going to overthrow the state right now? Other groups are operating in the background, in the shadows, and they calculate, actually, even if we go now, we won't win. So the, those figures connected to the German army, for example, they step back, they reckon, if we try and overthrow the state, the state of Prussia has there's too much democratic force in the state of Prussia for us to succeed. So they step back and they recognize that the democracy is too strong for them to overthrow it. Hitler has been speaking publicly for a year about using violence to overthrow and destroy the weaklings, the social democrats, the Jews. He cannot possibly step back. So in November, he first says, we'll overthrow the Bavarian state in Munich, and from there we'll march on Berlin and overthrow the, the Weimar Republic itself and we'll replace it with an authoritarian dictatorship. With, with, a, with They have a constitutional document, it should be said, which is filled with fantasies of committing violence against all their opponents. And so Hitler initially says we'll go on the 11th of November, the symbolic date for the armistices. Yeah. But then in Munich, a politician called Gustav Ritter von Kahr organizes a political assembly that's going to take place on the 8th of November in a beer hall where most of the ruling elite of Munich is going to be present. And then Hitler decides that's the thing we're going to attack. That's going to be the starting point for our putsch. And so that evening, as the who's who of Munich is present to listen to Gustav Ritter von Kahr gave a, a very nationalist speech. Ritter von Kahr is also an anti-Semite. He's also not committed to democracy at, at all. And that's when Hitler and his brown shirts march in. Hitler, fire, or one of those close to him, fires a pistol into the ceiling. The brown shirts erect machine guns around the assembly. No one's allowed to leave. And Hitler then forces von Kahr, a man called von Sosso, who's the head of the Bavarian army, into a side room where he threatens them with gunpoint and he promises them that a new Germany is going to be born tonight or we're going to die trying. And they go back onto the stage and they all proclaim that they've joined forces together and that this is the birth of a new point in, in Germany. A few hours later, Hitler miscalculates. He leaves von Karl and uh, Lasso under the command of General von Ludendorff, the man who lost the First World War. And Ludendorff says, these guys are officers. I trust their words. So when they say, can we go? He says, yes. And then they leave the building and they go back into the military headquarters. And then they say, well, actually, we're not in favor of the putsch. And they issue a countermanding order, basically. And then, and then in, in the early early hours of the night of November, the news is circulated through Munich, through Bavaria, that the Bavarian state is not with Hitler. It's against Hitler. And the police and army are mobilized only to a limited degree in the morning of the night, but they're taking up places in the, in the city centre to stop the putsches. And at this point, in about probably about five in the morning, Hitler and those closest to him decide we've got to rescue this situation 
by launching a march, by marching to the centre of Munich. And when we march through central Munich, the city will come onto our side. They'll join forces with us. The soldiers sent to fire on us won't fire. They'll join with us too, and we'll still succeed. So it's a last gasp throw of the dice yeah, yeah, yeah. to rescue the situation. And at the first bridge where they come up against a group of armed police, the armed police, they decide we're not going to open fire on these guys. I should say for most of the previous night, there's always been standoffs where people have been reluctant to open fire. There's kind of wait and see what happens next. So uh, that's a little bit like, you know, the army are like, well, these guys are actually kind of on our side. They're also former veterans. They have the same political goals as us. We won't open fire on them. And the Nazis, when they face a group of soldiers at a barracks, they kind of say, well, we're not opening fire on them. Hopefully some somehow we'll take control of that barracks without violence. But that doesn't happen apart from in one building. So the putsch itself is about 20 hours. Nazis only control a handful of buildings at any time in it. So it's very, very limited. But when they come to the Odeonsplatz, having been successful at the first bridge, they then face a group of soldiers and police and firing starts. And after two minutes, the putsch is over. 20 people in all in the course of the putsch are killed. On the Odeonsplatz, it's four police and it's 14 Nazis. Hitler's at the front, he's linking arms with a man called Eric von Schäubner Richter. Von Schäubner Richter is shot and killed. And he, as he's shot, he falls to the ground and he pulls Hitler down to the ground with him. That dislocates Hitler's shoulder. Hitler then manages to escape from the square, uh, is rescued by a Nazi doctor, is brought into hiding. But a few days later, he's found and arrested. So he ends the year depressed, a little bit suicidal, actually. And again, in that moment, of course, He's searching for, once again, some group to blame for what's happened, for his humiliation, for his defeat. And that makes him even more fixated that the Jews have defeated me this time, but they won't get me the next time. That's the way his radicalization works. Every time he fails, he finds he hates the Jews more to blame for the defeat that's happened. We're going to leave it there. But the book is 1923. Mark, that was a tour de force, a tour de force. We ended up on the ground with a dislocated shoulder and a, a very, very bitter weirdo. I'm just actually thinking if the fella beside him hadn't taken the bullet and he had, the world would have been totally different. Or maybe it would have been. Maybe it would have been. But it's one of those what ifs. But we will definitely come back, John, into studio and discuss and digest that. Mark, the book is it's brilliant. And it's, it's, it's an amazing achievement. I advise it's coming up to Christmas, right? If you have in your family a brother, a dad, a sister, a mother who's into all this sort of popular history. Uncles, granddads, brothers-in-laws, fathers-in-laws <laughs> as well. Go out, grab it. 1923 by Professor Mark Jones. So, Mark, that was brilliant. Thank you so much. See you, Dave. Take care. Great Pleasure. Stuff. Thank you so much. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, that was a comprehensive look. At Great nice, stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of stuff I didn't know. Uh, actually, one thing I do want to pick up on when he was talking about it, the thing I was quite surprised at, Germany hoarding all their gold and their silver and melting down jewellery and teeth and all that kind of stuff to hoard yes. all this wealth. Yes. Yeah, it just reminded me of that's kind of what's going on now in, in our... Oh, <laughs> our rainy in day hoarding, fund. Hoarding our rainy day fund. Don't, don't spend it just in case if you spend it, we don't have anything. It's true. There is a, there is a, It's the psychology of prudence. Remember we talked about the, on the podcast? Yeah, prudence. You know, the, 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 the tyranny of prudence. Yeah. Uh, and in the German case, the tyranny of prudence was the fact that, and this always recurs to me, which is the following, that central bankers see their role as a very, very narrow gauge mandate, right? I will not spend money today because if I do, mm. my little nest egg will be gone. But what they fail to understand or appreciate is that they are part of the state. And so prudence today creates resentment tomorrow, resentment tomorrow creates the fascists of the future, yeah. right? And the populists of the future. And that's precisely what happened. This is the extraordinary thing about Mark Jones's book. It's all about that. Yeah, yeah. And just the final thing I'd like to say before we go, John, is what's also interesting is the fact that the Weimar Republic survived in 1923. It actually survived. So the, the lesson for today mm. is that it matters what people do. It matters what politicians do. It matters what institutions do and how they react to these sort of internal, in the case of Germany, yeah. and external, also in the case of Germany, threats. So in a way, what 1923 is telling us, it's a story, everyone looks at it as the story of failure. Yeah. But actually, the way to look at it is the story of success. And it's what happened between 1923 and 1933 as the story of failure. And maybe, John, we should come back to the economics of that 10-year period, because that economics is fascinating. It takes in the crash, the Great Depression, yeah. tariffs, all that stuff. And it ends in January 1933 with Adolf Hitler being the leader of the biggest party, but not the majority party, in the Reichstag, needing to lean on somebody and he leans on the ancient president of the Weimar Republic. And it is the ancient president of the Weimar Republic that does the wrong thing by letting Hitler in. And had Hindenburg not done that, history could be quite different. But we will approach that and deal with it. I, not, maybe not next week, in a couple of weeks' time. I, I feel another series coming on. Another series. <laughs> Talk to you next week. <laughs> 